Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the SCANA studio today is Adam King, who is an associate professor of archaeology and anthropology at USC and also associated with the Institute of Archaeology. And he has edited a very interesting book for those of us who are non-archaeologists, as well as for the profession, called Archaeology in South Carolina, Exploring the Hidden Heritage of the Palmetto State. So, Adam, welcome to the journal. Thanks. Why did you decide to put this book together? I, I know that one of your ideas was you wanted to make this more available to the public, but over the years I have read archaeological reports, and I must confess that I, I can't, it's hard to understand. I can read this book and get something out of it. And that, that was part of the intent of it. We're, we're really trained. The interesting writing is often trained out of us, and it's only the really good writers who retain it because we're technical writers for the most part. And this was designed to be accessible to the general public. We, it's been a long time since a book came out just focusing on South Carolina archaeology, but we wanted it to be accessible to the general public. And there's a, there's a really important reason for that. It's because archaeology is generally funded in some way by the general public. It's either through public money or granting or individuals donating, and it's really supported by the interest of the general public. Most sites that we work on are privately owned. Um, they may be publicly owned, but any way you do it, um, we're really, we really need to be talking more to the general public. They're interested, they're really interested in what we do, and we don't do enough writing for them. Okay, and and the fact that you mentioned the public ownership, if you, if you will, under the Historic Preservation Act, any site that involves federal funding, there has to be an archaeological pre-study, right? Yeah, it's, it's federal funding or federal permitting um, has to look to see if there's anything eligible for the National Register. And we usually think of, you know, buildings and things like that being eligible for the National Register, but archaeological sites can be too. And that trigger of eligibility is what causes federal funding, federal projects, federal permittees to have some responsibility to understand what's there and if it's really important and is going to be impacted to in some way mitigate that impact, usually by capturing information. Well, for example, you, you say not government funding but government permitted, that might be something like building a dam or running a power line, something like that? Yeah, and a lot of those, believe it or not, end up with federal funding too. But you think about stormwater runoff permits, you know, things where you might go through the Corps of Engineers, things that you wouldn't necessarily think of, um, but that require a federal permit, at some level require this kind of investigation. All right. In your time as an archaeologist, you've been here, oh gosh, almost 30 years. 25, yeah. Yeah. Has something come to light, let's just say, with a project, a highway or something that really just kind of blew you away? I mean, for example, when they dig in London now, all of a sudden they'll come up with something from the 6th century and that kind of thing. The, the, actually, one of the, the articles in the book here that talks about a Yamasee Indian village that was discovered and investigated as part of one of these kinds of projects. It's surprising how often those sorts of things come up where there are extraordinary things that we find through these federally driven projects. And it comes back to the reason for the book. In a lot of cases, great work is done. It's all in detail, written up and analyzed, and it becomes a report that goes to a few people and nobody else ever sees it. And so there's all sorts of extraordinary things that are found, most of which most people never get to see what it is. How large an area was uncovered in this Yamasee village. There are several acres that are uncovered, and I don't think the entire thing was actually excavated. Um, the, the extent of it was defined based on excavating small holes, but actually excavating large areas is really expensive. Yeah. Um, when people think of archaeology, they immediately think about Pompeii and what have you. It's great to have stone and marble ruins, but for an Indian village, wood would have been used. What did you find? Well, what, what they found in that instance was artifacts that didn't 
decay. So things made of stone. Um, this is something that's in the historic period. So there's historic ceramics as well as low-fired ceramics made by Native Americans. There's bottle glass. There's um, different sorts of European-style ceramics. But then a lot of, and we look at the distribution of those that was used, broken, dropped on the ground, deposited in trash pits, or thrown outside the house. So we look at the distribution of those things to be able to understand activities that are happening on the site and where certain things took place. And then we have, we, we call them features, non-portable aspects of the archaeological record. Usually here in South Carolina, if you're not talking about something that's in the historic period, it's things where people dug holes in the ground. They put in posts, they put in a hearth, they put in a pit, and then the post was pulled up, the hearth fell into disuse, the pit was filled back in, and it leaves a, a soil discoloration or a stain. And based on the shape, based on the contents, we can infer what it was. So if you see a ring of small holes, it's a set of post holes that potentially define a house. If there's a hearth inside of that, then it looks like a house. If there are storage pits inside of it, then it's a house. So we, we look at artifacts, and we also look at the, the evidence of things people did there, look at patterning, and then infer what they were doing, what the behavior was. Were the houses circular? Those were, um, I think, semi-rectangular. Oh, okay. The, the, the MSC okay. ones. And you have, depending on time period, quite a bit of variation from circular to rectangular. And then when you get into the, the Yam, when we're talking about the Yamasee, we're talking about after Europeans have been here for a while and the Yamasee themselves are an amalgam of people that came from the coast and people that came from the interior of Georgia. And you have a lot of this that happens in the historic period. You've got pretty incredible depopulation within communities, and then several different communities coalesce. They come together to form a new but large enough social unit, and the Yamasee are that kind of a and thing. And of course, the area where the Yamasee were, which is Beaufort to the, towards the Savannah River, they were actually encouraged to settle there by the colonial authorities. So in terms of Native American settlement there, they were kind of latecomers. That's right. They were, and yeah, that's exactly it. It's one of the fascinating things about that time period is we don't think about Native Americans were very active players in colonial politics and colonial economics. Um, and they were, in that case, they were originally with the Spanish in Spanish Florida, and then they were invited to settle south of Charleston and be a buffer between Charleston and Spanish Florida. So there are all these political things going on along with the trading. Um, that, that bring people to different places and move them around. It's, it's a fascinating time period, really. I know that people would say that was a digression, but when you mentioned <laughs> that, I had, I had to get into that because the whole story of the Yamasee in South Carolina, and this, since it happened in the historic period, and we're going to talk about that definition in just a minute, there's a lot of historic evidence that really assists the archaeologist and, and vice versa That's with right. that. But then before European settlement, we get into something called prehistoric. And let's talk about those terms. I know some people, when you say prehistoric, I've had Native Americans on the program and they said, well, my people had a history before your people came here. It's a well-used term by archaeologists and historians and others. But in archaeology, what do you all mean exactly by prehistoric? The idea, and, and it really is a set of ideas that were developed in a vacuum outside of any input from Native Americans, so you can understand where there's a disconnect. It was originally designed to say anything before there's a written record, because when you have a written record, then you can go to that written record and look it up and find information that helps inform on the, the archaeology. And then anything before the written record was prehistory or before history, and you don't have a written record to go to. Now, Native people will say, does that mean we don't have a history? Well, of course they have a history, and they have a recorded history. It's an oral history. And the idea that something written down is history and then anything prehistory it implies that there's something lesser about that history, so you can understand. Well, if there are things like shell mounds that were not just discarded shells but were there for worship or what have you, and you talk about the, the great animal mounds out in the Midwest, that's a physical record. Are the Aztec settlements prehistory? No, uh, they, they wouldn't be because you've got writing to go with them. Okay. Um, I think... That's a term that's used more in North America than it is anywhere else. Yeah. 
It's an interesting concept, but it's also why sometimes there's tension between the archaeological community and, and Native Americans. Whose history is it? Now, that's something you talk about in your introduction. And I must say, a lot of times I skip over introductions. You know, you thank everybody, blah, 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 blah. But no, you start off and you ask a very important question. What is archaeology? Okay, Adam, what is archaeology? And I, I teach this in, in my classes. Archaeology is trying to figure out what happened in the past from the material remains that are there. We're really cultural anthropologists trying to reconstruct culture, trying to reconstruct behavior from what's left behind. The popular culture is we're interested in cool stuff and putting it in museums. And, and honestly, who isn't interested in cool stuff? But we're trying to find out things about the people that made the cool stuff and to tell that story and to put it within the context of the stream of humans' history. Okay, you've given a good definition of archaeology, but what about the popular image of archaeology? You know, Indiana Jones and Clive Cussler's people searching for buried treasure in the deep and that kind of thing. Are those people really archaeologists? Well, we we would say, you know, somebody who's actually a a trained archaeologist would say no, they're not. They're treasure hunters because to to us, archaeology really is a set of methods that are designed to capture information about the past from what's in the ground. And Indiana Jones just goes and finds things. He's not actually doing a whole lot of capturing information out of the ground. Actually, and he's not here to defend himself, <laughs> and I'm talking about the late Stan South, but if you want a colorful character, now he didn't jump on trains and he didn't carry a whip, but Stan South may have been one of the not only internationally renowned archaeologists to live in the state, but he was an amazing character. I think if there's somebody who has the the, the colorfulness of Indiana Jones, it, it was it was Stan. I mean, Stan was an amazing person. Most people don't know he wrote lots of poetry. He was a visual artist. He was just a, a brilliant guy, but loved to tell stories, loved regular people, had incredible adventures all over the place. Would would tell those stories. Just yeah, he was a, Stan was a, a force of nature and a character like. Nobody I've ever met. So in terms of archaeology and the, and the way you and your peers look at it, yes, you may find an artifact, but that's not your end goal. It's what does that artifact mean? Who, what, when? All of that figures into your work in archaeology, right? Yeah, and, and really that's captured by this concept of context. Um, you can bring an object to me, and in most cases I can tell you how old it is, what it was made from. But if I've lost exactly where it came from, what other objects are around it, what other features are around it, where it is on the landscape, then I've lost most of the story, most of the information. We get information out of where things are in relation to other things and other features and other sites on the landscape. Well, for example, going back to that Yamasee village, since you found portions of English glass bottles and what have you, if that had somebody came in with that, you could say, yes, this is an 18th century bottle, and some of them have the seals and, you know, the initials in it. But if they didn't tell you you found it in a Yamasee village, you could assume it was in an old well in Beaufort or Charleston or what have you. That's right. And it opens up a a whole new story or a whole new set of ideas to think about, which is Native people are exchanging and getting things from the Euro-Americans that are here. And then when you see that they're using that bottle glass to make traditional stone tools, they're using the same napping technique, but they're using bottle glass, then you get into a whole set of really interesting things about the interaction between Native people and Euro-Americans and technology. Okay, so context is important. And Historians would always add the why to it. You don't, but you do what, where, and when. What is the evidence? So whether it's a piece of bottle glass or colonial pottery or European import, but it's also a post hole. It's animal bones. I mean, you can look at it in a pit and just and figure out what people were eating. Yeah. Okay. Where obviously that's part of the context, and that helps lead to to when. Now determining when, that's gotten to be very interesting in the last 20 or 30 years, hasn't it? Well, it's messy. I mean, that's what it comes down to. 
If you're working with where there are historic documents or there are maker marks on ceramics and things like that, you can find out the year something was made, or you can find out the year that battle happened or something like that. When you go before written records, attaching it to a specific year is really hard. And radiocarbon dating, we think about radiocarbon dating revolutionized the way we date things in American archaeology, but radiocarbon dating is it's a statistical game. It gives you a central tendency and a standard deviation. And or, or, you know, when did radiocarbon, that came after World War II, right? Right. That was a product of nuclear science. So it developed out of developing the nuclear bomb and really became something people were using by the 1950s. Explain how that works. I mean, you, you hear it all the time and, you know, you watch the TV shows and they'll, they'll figure out, well, this might have happened 50 years ago or 100 years ago. But actually, you have to have something fairly old to deal with carbon dating, don't you? Well, carbon dating, um, you need to have something that's at least a couple hundred years old. But if you get beyond 50,000 years old, it doesn't work very well. So it's got a fairly tight range in there. You need something that was once living because it's based on the idea that everything living takes in carbon, and it takes in carbon to the level that carbon exists in the atmosphere. When you die, you stop taking in carbon. One of the isotopes of carbon, carbon-14, decays once you stop taking it in. It flakes off electrons and it turns into something else. We know the rate at which it decays. Half of it's gone every 5,730 years. So if you know how much you should have started with, you can measure how much is left, and you know how long it takes to disappear. You can calculate when that thing died and when it stopped taking in carbon. Okay, so it had to be living, so that could be a bone. Bone. Mm -hmm. It could be plant material. Mm -hmm. What else? Shell. Shell? Mm-hmm. Um, and usually the plant material, wood, something like that, the only time we find it preserved in the archaeological record is when it's carbonized. Mm -hmm. So charcoal, burned things. Walk me through something that you that you found and, and used for dating. I'm still a little bit confused about the starting date. The the it's it's not so much a starting date as it's a starting amount. You know, you have you're supposed to have X amount of carbon in your body. It's the same as the level in the atmosphere. When you take something to date it, you measure how much of that carbon is left, and that gives you how much disappeared, and you know the rate at which it disappears. Okay, but it, but over time there might not have been. More carbon in the atmosphere. Well, that's that's the that's the hitch in all of this. It was great until we started doing ice cores in Antarctica and figured out that atmospheric levels of carbon have varied, and so we have a method that's premised on the idea that it's always been that atmospheric levels of carbon have always been the same, and they haven't. So now we have to do these calibrations. So you run a radiocarbon date based on those assumptions, and then you calibrate it using other methods that have come from the ice cores, or some other kinds of methods. So there's actually a calibration curve. You you get a radiocarbon date that's based on the assumption of how much carbon there was and the half-life of, of carbon-14, and you get a date. And then you plug that date into a program that plots it on this curve that's been created that's supposed to correlate radiocarbon years to actual years. Um, and the, even that's messy because we have holes where data is missing. We have places where the curve does these funny little wiggles. So you can have a radiocarbon date that might have four or five different calendar years based on the calibration we have. It's messy. It gives you a range, right? Yes. Yeah. 200 years, is that up? Most, most radiocarbon dates now were between 30 and 50 years in terms of a standard deviation. Oh, okay. So, you know, you're talking about maybe 100 years on either side. Now, if you remember your statistics, one standard deviation only gives you a 66.6% confidence that your mean is within that range. So you got to go to two standard deviations. So now you're talking about a 200-year range. And the thing that, that is uh, most people don't think about is, so we get this number, 1450 is, is the number we get, but it's 200 years on either side. So that date is somewhere between 1250 and 1650. And if you look at the history of Native Americans between 1250 and 1650, there's an incredible amount that changes. And you think about the life of any individual, you think about this country and what's happened in 200 years our dating of things is not nearly as precise as we would like it to be. Right. Well, there's another way of testing for age, is there not? Not just carbon dating. 
the the optically stimulated luminescence or thermal luminescence. They're two different techniques that I need you to walk me through. <laughs> I need you to walk me through that because I read it twice and I'm still not sure. It's the whole idea is that um, some minerals have a crystalline structure. So feldspar is uh, an example of what they use. The crystalline structure has elements in it. When those elements get energized, get hit by the sun or heated, they attract electrons. So they become an ion, right? And when that energy dissipates, the electrons flake back off, but they're captured within the structure of the crystal. So basically, over time, there are more free electrons or electrons that are flaked off that are captured in there. It's another one where we know, you know that it should have started with zero electrons bumping around in there and that over time, they've broken off. And we know the rate at which those electrons break off. So if we can open up that crystal structure, measure the number of electrons, and we know the rate at which the electrons break off, we can work backwards in time to figure out when that crystalline structure was zapped with sunlight or heated to a certain temperature. So now you're talking about things like arrowheads? It's, it's more like sand. It's more, the, the great thing about optically stimulated and thermoluminescence dating is you're, ba- you're dating something that's ubiquitous in archaeological sites, dirt. It's really grains of sand. So you couldn't do it with a projectile point, but you could do it with the sediment that a projectile point is in. Geologists, this is developed for geology, really, and archaeologists use it. But you can also pull a grain of sand out of a pottery sherd. I did it with um, some plaster that was put on a wall of a site that dates to about 1300. And so we sent some of the red clay that had burned, the wall had burned. We sent the red clay off and came back with dates that matched carbon dates that we ran from the site to. Where do you send it off to? Do we have a lab here in South Carolina? No, and that's the that's one of the tricks with these kinds of dating techniques is Jim Feathers uh, at the University of Washington. There are very few labs that do this. There are some in the U.K. There may only be one or two here in the U.S., and it takes a long time. It took us a year and a half to get the results um, from that. And, and they're expensive. Both both the radiocarbon and uh, um, the thermoluminescence we're talking three to six hundred dollars a date. Again, Adam, this reminds me of what people think if, as they watch a show or movie. Well, we'll just have this carbon tested, and they ship it off, and twenty-four hours later, they got the answer that they want. Now, if you were doing that luminescence, and it took you a year and a half, if you were on a contract, they want an answer. And do they people understand that? Look. We've got this sample, but it's going to take a year and a half. I can't do my final report for a year and a half. More likely, people just aren't going to use it. If, if they're on that kind of a deadline and they've got to present the results by that deadline, then they're probably not going to use these dating techniques. Okay. Then it's kind of guesswork. Well, then you, you fall back on radiocarbon dating, and we've been doing radiocarbon dating since the 50s, and of course, it's gotten the method has gotten a lot better. The standard deviations have gotten a lot smaller, but we've been able to correlate artifact styles with radiocarbon ages. So I, you can give me a piece of pottery, and I can look at the decoration, and based on previous radiocarbon dating, I'll tell you when it dates to. I don't need a radiocarbon date to say, oh, that dates between 11 and 1200 A.D. Some styles we know better than others. Some styles we have dated better than others. But most arrowhead styles, most pottery styles, we have a pretty good idea of when they fall. You mentioned it a little bit, the geologists. When you start, if you do a traditional dig, as people think, you're doing layers, you can look at the soil layers, the stra- the stratus, what you call it, stratigraphy? Stratigraphy. Stratigraphy. So let's talk about that a second. I mean, you're going down and all of a sudden you've got the topsoil, but I mean, you've got different layers and you can identify time periods with those layers? Well, um, if you actually did the OSL dating on the different layers. I mean, the the fundamental principle is, especially here in the eastern woodlands, um, soil profiles build up. And so the older stuff is on the bottom and the more recent stuff is on the top. And that's a a presumption based on that, you know, that physical development of soils. People do date 
you know, date soil grains from the different strata as a way, geologists do this, geoarchaeologists do it as a way of establishing the history of the soils and then where the artifacts fall in them. Um, so if I, if I saw a different colored stratum in the soil, I would know that it's formed by a different process and I would know whatever's above it is younger and whatever below it is older. But that's, that's about the extent of what stratigraphy can do. It's about, you know, hor- our vertical relationships. Okay. Adam, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Adam King with the Institute for Archaeology at the University of South Carolina. I wanted to do those that exploration of dating to get to settlement patterns in South Carolina, including one of the incredible sites, the Topper site, that um, with some others helped change archaeological history across the country. We use terms in terms of Native Americans. When you talk about Mississippians, you're really talking, what, 1,000 to 1,600? Yeah. The beginning of European right. settlement. Right. Woodlands, 2,000 years before that? A couple thousand years B.C., yeah, um, to... What's the difference between Woodland Indians and... Mississippians. In some places, there, there's very little difference, but we, we define it based on artifact styles, which really come down to choices of tools, the kinds of tools they're using, the choices of decoration and the, the decoration that they're using that may have to do, the tools may have to do with the way they're making a living. The decoration may have to do with how they see themselves and how they're interacting with other people. Um, but the, the real difference is about how they make a living and how they organize their societies and the scale of communities. Mississippian, we see larger communities. We see a greater focus on um, growing domesticated plants, particularly those that came from Mexico, corn, beans, and squash. The In the, the woodland period tends to be slightly smaller communities, maybe more mobile, moving around more on the landscape. They're growing certain kinds of domesticates that were domesticated locally, for example, kinopodium and sunflower. But they're generally smaller scale, a little bit less complicated in terms of the social rules. And particularly what we see in the Mississippian is clear evidence that some people are more important than others, and it's an ingrained part of the social structure. All right. And the Mississippian is where you begin to see mounds in America, is that? Well, you see mounds in the woodland. Actually, mounds begin late in the archaic period. You see mounds that are about you know, 7,000 years old. Oh, okay. All right. But the woodland folk, lay people might say that's the hunter, they're hunter-gatherers. Is that? Well, but it's not necessarily. And in different, on different landscapes, people were using it differently. Uh, for example, I've done a lot of work in the Aiken Plateau, which is the, the middle of South Carolina, which is, you know, ancient coastal plain, sandy soils, some big rivers, well-drained soils. We see people are generally hunting and gathering from some of the earliest people on up into European contact. They may be doing small-scale gardening after 1000 AD, but the best way to use the landscape is as a hunter-gatherer. If you get down into river valleys, especially river valleys with well-developed floodplains, then domestication of plants and growing things becomes common, you know, probably uh, in the, near the end of the woodland period, but becomes much more common in the Mississippian period. Okay. Now, the archaic goes way back. That's right. It goes back 10,000 years. To about 9,500 BC. Before Common Era. Yep. Then we get into the Topper site, and I think the term you now use is Paleo Indian. Well, Paleo Indian is, is Clovis and some post Clovis cultural groups, mm-hmm. but it's what has long been recognized as the, the earliest Native American culture. What we've got it. Topper, or what Al Goodyear argues is that Topper is something that comes before what we rec- have long recognized as Paleo-Indian. And does it really go back 50,000 years? We, we don't know. Um, and this is, this is more Al Goodyear's place to talk about than mine, but I'll give you my perspective on it. He's got a 50,000-year-old radiocarbon date. We know the radiocarbon dates become less reliable at that range because there's so little carbon left. So that could be a 70,000-year date. It could be a 50,000. It could be even older. What he's dated is carbon 
from a soil level, so it's charcoal, from a soil level where he's got artifacts. So the charcoal isn't necessarily directly associated with the artifacts. It could be older charcoal. It's, it's tricky because of that association. If we look at human history, right now the best evidence says that there were people in Alaska about 22,000 years ago. There's people in Siberia maybe 30,000 years ago. But before that, there's, no, there's nobody on that eastern end, and the traditional idea is that people came from Siberia over to Alaska and, and down the coastline and populated the New World that way. So if there's nobody even over in that area 50,000 years ago, then the 50,000-year-old date creates some, at least some conflicts in terms of traditional interpretations. But Topper is not the only site. You have sites in Michigan, Pennsylvania... Maryland, Virginia, Kentucky, Florida. But, but none of those have a 50,000-year-old radiocarbon date. Um, some of those go back into the 20s. Metacroft Rock Shelter uh, outside of Pittsburgh is a great example of that. Great, it's, it's a rock shelter. It's got great stratigraphy, a whole series of radiocarbon dates that go back to 19 or 20,000 years ago. There are other places that have pretty compelling dates that go back to 20,000 years ago. At Topper... There's some pretty good dates in the 20,000-year range that seem that I think he's got from the luminescence dating, so it's dating the soil, that are with those uh, artifacts that are before Clovis. So I think, you know, 20,000 years ago is pretty compelling. 50,000 years ago, we need a lot more dates like that. But, but even 20,000 years ago has changed history. Where do, who were these people and where did they come from? Right. And that's, that's sort of one of the new frontiers of American archaeology is understanding this. And we always accepted that they all came from Asia. And if we look at the genetics of all modern Native Americans, what we see is they've got the genetic markers of people who came from Asia. There are now people talking about the fact that people came from Europe, the, the Salutrian culture of France and Spain, and they came around the Atlantic ice sheet and landed on the East Coast. We don't we don't have the genetic evidence. There are some people who make some arguments based on the forms of artifacts that that may have happened, but we simply don't have enough evidence to completely connect the dots. And that's why we can't just throw out that fifty thousand year old date. But right now, it's it's out alone by itself. And and here's one of the tricky things about this: you talk about twenty thousand years ago, you talk about thirty thousand years ago. The coastline was in a different place. It's the Pleistocene, it's the ice ages, so water is captured in the polar ice caps and sea levels have dropped. So now the coastline, it can be, you know, miles, 100 miles off of where it is now on the continental shelf. So the stuff that's really going to answer these questions is probably underwater. If it, ha if it hasn't been dredged up. <laughs> well, and bits and pieces are dredged up periodically. And mm. one of the new frontiers, I think, of archaeology is going to be underwater archaeology. Yes, people have been doing underwater archaeology for a long time. The, depending on the conditions, it's difficult. It's difficult to control context as, as well as you can on land. But until we develop um, much better methods for working in that environment, we may not get the information we need to answer that. You talked about difference in, in coastline, and we all know it, at, at one time the fall zone was the coast. So Topper is right there on what was a primitive coast or coast? Well, it, it would have been a coast at one point, but probably not when people were around. Okay. Um, so from the 20,000 years ago, the coastline would have been further away. They would have been quite you know, quite far into the interior. And even now, it's, you know, quite a ways up the Savannah River from the coast. So it would have been an interior site by any measure. Okay. Well, I, you know, I just think it's, it's, it's fascinating because you not only have Topper, but you have that site in Georgia across the river where they really found the first fired pottery. Right. Stallings Island. Yeah. So it just kind of turns the traditional story of, well, they migrated, across, you know, the Bering Strait was frozen or it's a land bridge and they came over and everybody moved south and east. Well, obviously that wasn't necessarily how it happened. Right. We, I, I don't think we have a clear picture of how it happened. In any of those simple, broad explanations, they came across, across the land bridge, they got to Alaska, they snuck through the ice-free corridor and went everywhere. People just don't, you can't come up with explanations that broad that explains everything. We're too, we're too 
idiosyncratic. We're too complicated. Um, so you would expect our history, that early history here, to be just as complicated and multifaceted. Well, I mean, if you look at the Pacific peoples, the, the stories there have changed certainly over the last two centuries about, yes, they might have been what was then termed primitive peoples. Yes, they could sail a thousand miles and find a dot and settle. How did they do that? That's you know? right. And it, it calls into the question the whole idea of, you know, what do you, what do you call primitive? I mean, they had knowledge that I certainly don't have, and capacities that I certainly don't have. Terminology, it's not a question of political correctness. It's a question of actually assumption by some folks, well, hey, they don't look like we do. They don't dress like we do, so they must be primitive folks, forgetting it sometimes that the largest cities in the world happened to be in Asia. They were not in Europe. That's right. Uh, just remember who invented gunpowder and spaghetti. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it was it was not the Italians or the Europeans. It's Chinese. And the, and the same thing when you talk about who owns the past, and I know this was way before your time as a as an archaeologist, but used to be you could go to St. Augustine, and I don't know if the Indian graveyard is still there as a tourist site, but it used to be all opened up, and there's somebody's ancestors out there in the public. That's not what's done today, right? No, it's not. And, you know, it's something that's happened within my professional lifetime. If I, I started doing archaeology in the late 80s. Um, and when, when I was trained, even as a graduate student, we really didn't talk about Native Americans, especially here in the East, very much, and certainly about their concerns or about their input. And that's changed considerably over the past 30 years. And the, the, the disappearance of burial exhibits is just one part of that. And, and we claim to be anthropologists, archaeologists, here at least in North America. And that means that we're studying people and we're understanding people. And part of that study and understanding people is the fact that what happened in the past is, is part of a continuation of a historical stream that comes into the present. So in the past, we've been lousy anthropologists by ignoring the fact that there are still people around that are connected to this history in a way that I'm not. When I go talk to Native people, one of the things I say is, I recognize this isn't my history. I recognize that I'm making my living off of your history. And that allows me to talk about what what do they want to know? What, what is it that they want to get out of this? I think the term is, Native Americans used to be objectified, and it's not just a problem with archaeologists. You've got historians and sociologists and linguists look at the Gullah culture, look at the Mill Village culture. It happens, and and I love the question that you that you mentioned. It may not have been you actually meeting somebody, but dealing with a Native American response would Would you be okay with me digging up your grandmother to study? Uh, you don't know how many times I've been asked that. Um, a lot. So let's talk about your own digs. Aiken Plateau, you're primarily Native American people. Um, Fort Galfa, isn't that in that area? That is in that area. Um, I work I worked for a long time and still continue to work with something called the Savannah River Archaeological Research Program, which is part of the Institute, but works at the Savannah River site, which is part of the Department of Energy's nuclear arsenal down in New Ellington, South Carolina. And 310 square miles, they've got an ongoing archaeology program that's staffed by the University of South Carolina. And we've been doing research on that 310 square miles since the 70s. So that's one of the places that, that I've been working and sort of extending up and down the Savannah River Valley, going all the way down to Allendale, coming up to Augusta. Um, we see an area, particularly the time period I work on is Mississippian, so it's the later end of the time period. We see a distribution of sites and pottery styles that suggest some level of interaction and coherence that we can treat it in a sense as a, a collection of people or a unit of study. And so I've been studying the places in that particular stretch of the river valley, um, and especially its its history from about 900 to really about 1458. Well, and of course, at one time, people thought Silver Bluff was the site of Kofitachiki. Well, there are still people who think that, yeah. Are um, you one of them? No, 
No, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not. But it, just as as an aside, Gail Wagner, who's in the anthropology department, and I are going to start up a project at the place that um, most people think is Kofidacheki, which is the um, the Mulberry Mounds yeah, in near K- Camden. Yeah. Um, so hopefully, within a few years, we may have some more something more definitive to say on whether we can find evidence that DeSoto and Pardo were there. The Institute has been involved with several major finds, in addition to Topper, but these are European. First of all, Santa Elena, which was Chester de Prada and Stan South working there for years and uncovering the site of Santa Elena at Paris Island. And then more recently, the discovery of Charles Fort. Chester and Stan were involved with that too, but Jim Legg, who began his life as a history student, (laughs) and, and Victor Thompson, came up with Charles Fort. Nobody had known where Charles Fort was. But Jim Legg, having been trained as a historian, recognized pottery when he was in Europe, and they found these shards, and he said, these aren't Spanish. That's French. They're French. And the Spanish had just built Santa Elena right on top of the ruins of Charles Fort, because it was the best location. Yeah. The whole Santa Elena story, I think, is, is, is fascinating, because you talked about trade patterns. And what Chester and Stan primarily found at Santa Elena early on, there was maize from Central America. There was Chinese export porcelain. You know, they were making their own pottery. They had the the famous kiln. People forget that there was a Spanish South Carolina. Right, and and how cosmopolitan it was, at least for that time. We're talking about the the 1500s, and then they're getting, like you said, they've got China, you know, porcelain from China. There's this incredible trade connection already that reaches through South America and the Caribbean, but also pulls things from Europe. And it ends up there in at Santa Elena because it's one of the places that Spain tried to establish and keep a foothold in North America. They'd already gotten Mexico, essentially, and that spine of South America, but you've got the French and later the English that they're competing with to try to take hold of the eastern seaboard of the U.S. Initially, of course, they thought that uh, it was only a couple of days' journey overland from the, the mines of Mexico to Beaufort Port Royal. But in terms of the Spanish treasure fleets, the best place on the East Coast to catch the trade winds is right off Beaufort. So it was an extremely important place, and actually the king of Spain wanted it there, and there were internal politics. You know, the governor of Cuba had investments in St. Augustine, and so the decision was made to abandon Santa Elena and beef up St. Augustine. That's where historical records, you know, there have been a number of projects on Santa Elena that involve going back to Spain and looking at the original records and Spanish in the 14th and 15th centuries is not exactly like Spanish today, but there are some Mm -hmm. scholars who are specialists in that, and they translated documents. It was amazing what great record keepers the Spaniards were. We, We know what was there when they abandoned Santa Elena because they compensated the settlers. We know how many pigs, cows. Yeah. You know, the whole bit. Yeah. And the great thing about archaeology is that it looks at history in a different way. The things that didn't get written down or seemed so in, inconsequential not to be written down are things that we can see. Maybe it's not the same temporal resolution, but we see people and things that, that aren't in the historical documents. So there's a great compliment there. Well, there, there are two things with Santa Elena that ended up having a big impact in South Carolina was the introduction of swine, which eventually became feral. And the other was, at least one of the stories, there were peach orchards in and around Santa Elena, and they were dug up and carried to the interior. Now, is that just lore? And I mean, how would you... Um, Well, we could, you know, we could look to see. And what you find is particularly peaches, Mm -hmm. um, and to a lesser extent, watermelons, and, and sometimes field peas, but peaches especially, become this great horizon marker, something that when Europeans show up and some of this, some of the European things are here in North America, they spread pretty rapidly. And peaches is something that native people grabbed onto. Um, and so you could, you could look at the dating of sites that have peaches and correlate that to Santa Elena and see if, if peaches appear earlier or after. Okay. All right. Adam, what's the great new frontier for archaeology? 
the great new frontier well it some of its questions what's you know how early did people get here and how do we figure that out and it, it becomes to beg technology how do we get that information that's on the continental shelf um, but the other and there are other interesting questions that we've only begun to ask because we've changed how we think about exploring the past so now we're more interested in things like identity and how people manipulate and, and rework their culture. And how do you see that archaeologically? Those are tricky things that we have to develop new ways of trying to figure out. But technology really is something that continues to, to drive new frontiers. You mentioned Victor Thompson and using remote sensing to find Charles Fort. And in the UK, they've been using remote sensing for 25 or 30 years. At this point, it's, it's been much more common in North America for the past 20 years. But that's revolutionized the way we do archaeology. Now we don't run out and dig small holes all over the place to try to find a site. You can run a piece of equipment across the site and get a decent idea of what sorts of archaeological features are there. You can do it in a day. It's less expensive and it's less destructive because honestly archaeology is destructive. You capture the past and you take it away from its original context. But also doing that sensing that Victor does, you might discover a site where you really need to go down and dig rather than just... Well, ultimately, you have to, because what remote sensing does is it tells you where likely features are from human occupation, but you don't know when it dates to. You don't know the things. You don't know anything about context, how it's used, what it's associated with. So ultimately, if you want to learn about it, you're going to have to dig. Hey, it's like getting an MRI. That's right. That's right. It may tell you what they think is wrong, but then they're going to have to go do something about it. Yeah. We've talked about archaeology in the wild, if you will, in the field. But one of the really important archaeological digs in South Carolina in the last 20 years has actually been in the city of Charleston. And urban archaeology is a little bit different animal, isn't it? Certainly. Um, you've got all sorts of differences in terms of logistics working, but you've also got a buildup. The, the, the things you want to look at are beneath the modern veneer of what's going on. And when people, and this isn't, we're, we're not as used to dealing with this if you were a Roman archaeologist or if you worked somewhere in the old world where you have cities that are thousands of years old, you dig through the debris of one city below one city below one city. And that's exactly what you're doing in places like Charleston or, or St. Augustine is looking, you know, below the different cities. And as cities are renewed and reused, then things are moved around, things are destroyed, things are dug up. So there's a whole complex set of things that go on that change the archaeological record. Yeah. Most folks forget that East Bay really was the, the coastline. Yeah. And the docks went out from there and then everything got filled in, yeah. not to mention all the creeks and what have you that got filled That's in. Right. But That's right. That archaeological dig uncovered part of the city wall. Everybody knew Charleston had a city wall. They just did not know how massive right. it was. And that Charleston, South Carolina was rare in North America as being a walled city. Right. And those are the kinds of things that you learned from archaeology that you that may not have been written down, understood at the time, may have been so obvious that nobody wrote it down, but we can see it. Well, what if what if I want to go on a dig? How can I do that? How do I get in touch with? Who would I get in touch with? There are field schools that the, that the university offers. There are private companies that are constantly doing archaeology. Sometimes there are opportunities, volunteer opportunities there. The Kolb site was a, a great opportunity, but it's it stopped doing field work. The Archaeological Society of South Carolina is an avocational or an amateur and professional society, and becoming involved in that, you get lots of great opportunities to be able to go places like doing a dig at Spanish Mount down there on a, a part of the, the park that's there. Well, I mean, you don't just turn amateurs loose. I mean, they're under supervision. They're, 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 always, they're always under supervision, yeah. And archaeology is very labor-intensive, so as long as the, the circumstances are right, more people are always welcome, and they can be trained to, to do things properly. So the image of somebody down in a pit with a little uh, paintbrush, barely getting, scraping stuff away, and then 
putting in a screen and that kind of thing still goes on? It goes on, but there's probably, that's uh, 10%, and the other 90% is back-breaking, shoveling, sifting soil through screens, looking over screens, picking artifacts out. Um, it's it's fun, but it's some of it's tedium, too. And when they find that artifact, that, that particular square has got a number, I mean, that you're talking about the context. That's right. We keep track of everything in terms of the square and in terms of the, the depth, 10 centimeter level, so that we can keep control of context. So what are you going to do this summer? This summer, um, I may get to go to Belize. There's a project I'm working on that has to do with looking at archaeological residues inside of pottery vessels. We're trying to identify ritual beverages. And I'm looking here in the southeast, but we can't tell chocolate from black drink, which Native Americans were making here. So I'm working on a pilot study where we're actually going to do create the drinks and do chemical analyses of them. And you're going to drink them, right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> black drink would not be very pleasant. Actually, I've, I've drank it a lot, and it, it's fine. It's just a tea. The whole idea of throwing up is a cultural one because it's supposed to be a, a purgative. Oh, I was going to say, I thought yeah, I've always, the, the descriptions of they drank the black drink and then they vomited. Right. And that's because it's it's supposed it's part of a purification process before different rituals. So you drink it and then you drink it and then you spit it back out. But it doesn't make you vomit. It's it's actually a, a pretty good tea. Oh. Okay. Adam King, it's been a pleasure talking about your new book, Archaeology in South Carolina, Exploring the Hidden Heritage of the Palmetto State. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Just getting a grip or a better handle on what exactly is archaeology, what it's been in the past, but more importantly, what is it today, and how does it operate? What do terms mean? Historic, prehistoric, Paleo-Indian? In the course of our conversation, we talked about a number of the amazing discoveries that have been made in South Carolina that have literally changed historic interpretation. The discovery of Santa Elena, the discovery of Charles Fort, and in terms of Native American settlement at the Topper site, going back at least 20,000 years, maybe as early as 50,000 years ago, there were some people settled here in South Carolina. That is pretty incredible. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.